Uh, one of my favorite summertime activities is to make homemade ice cream. Does anybody ever do that? Lisa and I got as a wedding gift nearly 29 years ago an electric homemade ice cream maker. I assume those are still made, but it's something that we love. Uh, it still works. It's almost 30 years old, but we've, we've been using it for all these decades. And I love putting all the ingredients in there, adding the rock salt, adding the ice, and then just sit and watch that thing spin around and spin around and spin around and make the loud noise I kind of find relaxing. Uh, my go-to flavor is mint Oreo with a vanilla base. Uh, again, I've been making it for three decades. Every spoonful has about 10,000 calories. It's amazing. But last summer, on one occasion, we chose to make ice cream, and we were all gathered together, and the machine was spinning and doing its thing. We were all waiting for it. It was finished. I served it to whoever wanted some. And my first spoonful, I knew something wasn't quite right. I could taste the Oreo flavor, but something was off. I wasn't sure what it was, and then everyone else who was there started tasting and kind of had the same reaction. Again, I've been using the same recipe for almost 30 years. There shouldn't be anything different about the taste, but something wasn't right. So I went back through everything I had done, the eggs, the flour, the Oreos. It was the real Oreos, not the Kroger. You can't have Kroger Oreos. And it hit me, though. I didn't put any sugar in it. Imagine the tragedy that is homemade ice cream without sugar. Let me tell you, homemade ice cream that does not have sugar is something, but it is not ice cream. Something was off, and it was significant. But here's what's kind of funny. It looked like ice cream. It was cold. We ate it with a spoon. It was served in a bowl. It was summertime. Everyone was in a good mood. But something, if you only saw its outward appearance and did not look inside the dish and you did not taste it, you would know something was off. When you got close enough to find out what was in the inside, you knew something was missing that had to be there. We knew something was not right. This morning, as Luke mentioned, we are beginning a new sermon series. And it's these five weeks of Lent before we get into Holy Week uh, that we'll be looking at five different parables and it all center around the reality of repentance. Uh, this theme of Lent is to draw our hearts back to the reality that we once needed a Savior and we still need a Savior. We need Jesus and Jesus is here for us. Our sin and the sin of this world requires us to have this good Savior that we have in Him. So for today and for the following four Sundays, we'll be looking at these different parables about repentance. And all five of these revolve around one ongoing subject. And that is our need to repent. And I want us to see that if repentance is not part of your life, if repentance is not part of your testimony, if repentance is not part of your belief system, if repentance is not part of your Christian walk, then you're kind of like ice cream without sugar. You may look the part, but something's off. Something on the inside is not right, and you're not going to enjoy the kingdom that is ours in Christ. So let's deal with repentance because on Easter Sunday, we want to celebrate our Savior. So here's my proposition for us this morning. It's this. Embracing a lifestyle of repentance 
aligns our life with Jesus' good plan for us. Let me repeat that. Embracing a lifestyle of repentance aligns our life with Jesus' good plan for us. So three quick points this morning. First, see the benefits of repentance. Secondly, see the dangers of a lack of repentance. And thirdly, see the motivation to repent. And I pray, uh, this morning I pray for all of us, that as a church, as families, and as individuals, that we would be people who desire to repent of our sin because life in the Father's kingdom is worth it. All right, first, let's consider the benefits of repentance. Open your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 21 and, and let us set the stage for why Jesus gave this parable. Notice the flow of all that's taking place. Start at the top, uh, top of the chapter of chapter 21 of verse 1. Notice that Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem. This is going to be his final week before the crucifixion. This is his triumphal entry, and we will return here on Palm Sunday as he prepares for the Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper by him becoming our sacrifice. And notice in verse 12, as he went into the temple, this place that was designed for praise had turned into something else. It was being led by people who were religious in nature, but had turned it into a business, and it was about money, and it was not about the praise of the Lord. In verse 15, notice that these religious leaders hated the praise that was given to Jesus. They despised the children that would come to him. They didn't like the outcast of society having a friend at their place of worship. Notice what scripture says, that they became indignant. And in verse 18, this narrative really comes together when Jesus walks past this fig tree and he curses it. He walks past this tree and he wants it to be something that it's not. And he understands the reality that Jesus' curse was because the fig tree looked like a fig tree. There was just one thing missing from it. The fruit of a fig tree. There were no figs. The appearance was there, but there was no fruit. Again, something was off. And then in the beginning of verse 23, he encounters again those who will later be responsible for his death. These religious leaders, when they questioned Jesus' authority, the table was then set for him to reveal their hypocrisy. And their false accusations would be made against him. And Jesus is positioned to teach his disciples and to teach us the secret to the kingdom. And that is that our sin requires a Savior, and we are required to repent. This is, if you will, the required ingredient for the kingdom. And it's the very opposite of everything these teachers were providing. And understand this morning, it's not what we want to do, but it's what only God can lead us to do. So now, look at verse 28, and let's think about this parable. It's not hard to understand. There are two sons, and the father tells them both to do one thing, go to work. The first one says, no, he doesn't want to go. But then later he goes. The other one says, yes, but he never shows up for work. The, the point of the passage is that these religious leaders recognize that the one who actually went to work was the one who was receiving the goodness of the kingdom and embracing the father's will. 
But the key word is in verse 29, and then we'll see it again in verse 32. And it's that the first son did something supernatural. It says he, quote, changed his mind and went. Now, church, that might sound like a simple thing, but you need to understand it is not. In the original language here, this phrase, changed his mind and went, is one word. And it simply means this, to regret, or more commonly, to repent. The one son heard the instruction from the father, and he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. He did not want to go and do this job. But then something glorious happened. He changed his mind, and he obeyed, and he did what he didn't at first want to do, and he was rewarded as a result. He received the blessing of the kingdom. And to heap guilt upon the religious folks, in verse 32, Jesus reminded them that they had already heard about the righteousness of Jesus' kingdom from John the Baptist. This wasn't new information for them, yet they never changed their minds. They never did. Their lives were the exact same. They never changed their lives about anything. Do you know what's required to change your mind? What's required? It's the one thing none of us this morning want to do. I'll even argue it's the one thing we really can't do on our own. What's required to change your mind is simply to admit this. Your mind was wrong about something. The son had to first realize, I'm wrong. I'm disobeying. I'm missing out on what the father has for me. To repent, insist, he had to come to his senses and realize that what I was doing was not what the father wanted me to do. That is, the position I was holding, the opinion I carried, the stance I took, the images I consumed... The anger I held, I was wrong about them. Changing your mind requires the admission, my mind was wrong. Do you enjoy doing that? I assure you I don't. I don't think any of us do. The other day when it was so warm outside, I decided to take advantage of the weather and go for a bike ride. Like, why not? It's 77 degrees in February. I'm going for a bike ride. Lisa said... You know it's going to rain, don't you? I'm like, it's not going to rain. It's 77 degrees in February. Why would it rain? Five minutes later, I repented. As I came home, soaked, regretting my decision in hopes that Lisa would not see me. When King David was confronted with his sin of murder and of abuse, God confronted him using the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. And God opened his eyes to his sin, and David repented of it. And in his repentance, we heard these words from Ken just a moment ago from Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You see, our sin, our selfishness, our pride, it produces a life apart from Jesus' loving plan. And it leads us in a direction of misery. Notice this with the first brother. Repentance was not an apology. Apologies are so much easier than repenting. Our motivations can be mixed when we apologize. 
Repentance means you now do something different than you were doing. The son went to work. He didn't want to. But he trusted the Lord, he trusted his father, and he went. You see, the religious leaders never sensed that they had just perhaps missed something. In their pride, they would rather be right in their own eyes, right in their own heart, than to ever admit that maybe I was wrong. And they would forfeit the blessing of the Father's kingdom, even to the point of missing it all. Scholars have rightly pointed out that the reality that the event which sparked the Protestant Reformation over 500 years ago was Martin Luther's hanging of the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Castle. But you know the number one of the 95 listed said this. Luther said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. See, it's not just a one-time thing that we do to get into the kingdom, but rather this is now our lifestyle. is having our minds changed to God's holy, perfect will. The significance of repentance is that God's Spirit is the one working inside of our heart to invade us, to change your mind. The action of this first son reveals this is now how we live. Our wills are being conformed to his. So TCPC, let me ask you this. As we enter into this season of Lent, we don't want to be people who merely come to church and go through the motions to look the part and actually be spiritual frauds. We want to be people who repent. So let me ask you, where have you been wrong about something? By God's spirit, can you admit that? What have you done that was against the Father's will? Can you be honest about that? What are you doing that you know displeases the Lord? Can you confess and repent? And I pray for you even now, in this hour with God's word opened and it being preached, let the Holy Spirit do that which only the Holy Spirit do and lead you to repentance. Open your heart to him knowing that embracing repentance leads us to the life that God has for us in his kingdom. God's kingdom comes through repentance. So embrace it this morning. Okay, we've seen the first brother. Now, let's look at the second brother and see the danger of a lack of repentance. Look back at verse 30. Let me reread this. Verse 30, he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Do you notice something unique about this second son? Please see here who is before us. What a fine, upstanding young man we have. Note the translation of verse 30 and see that it is accurate. And the irony is not to be lost. When asked by his father to go to work that day, this kid responded with, Yes, sir. He had excellent manners. His parents should be congratulated on how they trained him to speak to adults. 
The father told him to do something, and this kid practiced first-time obedience. I mean, all the parenting books must have worked. Let's be honest. Just by outward appearance, this kid gave a great first impression. This young man is one of whom we would have all been so proud. Now, since Jesus used a parable here, we're allowed to use our imaginations a little bit. So let me do so. Thinking about this young man with good manners, I suspect he was a good student. I suspect he was well-dressed, kept his shirt tucked in without having to be told to. He probably had a good, firm handshake. He knew how to look you in the eye when you ask him a question. He would have crushed every job interview. Who wouldn't want this guy on their team? This guy had future leader written all over him. He would have gotten a bid into every fraternity he wanted to be in. I mean, this guy was the top of his class. If you think about it, this guy even makes Luke Rakestraw look mediocre. And that's impossible. What a stud this guy was. What's the problem? He didn't go to work. He didn't obey. He didn't actually want what the father wanted of him. He did not want and he did not trust that the father's desire for him was best. You see, he had real no interest in the father's actual plan for his life. He wanted the father to like him. He wanted a good reputation. He wanted his father to give him things. He wanted everyone to be happy. He liked the status quo, but he wasn't going to go and do something that he didn't want to do. He didn't want any of that enough to trust that the life in his father's world was better than something he could create on his own. At the end of the day, this second brother knew that he knew more than his father did. He knew that he was smarter than his father. He knew that he had life figured out way more than his father ever could. And now, look at his new set of friends. Look with whom Jesus compares him. Who does he do life with now? You see, his people are the religious folks. They are the ones who never admit that they're wrong. They are the ones who are right about everything. They are the ones who refuse to accept when they are told they are wrong, that they actually are wrong. These are the ones who love the veneer of church and life at church, who love the customs, who love the traditions, who love the liturgies. But there's nothing real about them because there's no repentance. Why do these people love religion? It's because the one thing that they can do on their own and compare themselves to everyone else And in that, they can feel good if they do it more than you do. And now that is his life. But see the contrast between the two brothers and who they represent. You see, repentant people aren't like that. Repentant people know that their life is a mess. They know it. Repentant people have made mistakes and they have no problem admitting it. Repentant people have regrets of things they have done in their life, but they're honest about them. Repentant people are not overly concerned with how others look at them because they know their father sees them. Repentant people just want their father and all that he's about and everything that he has done for them. 
Repentant people will gladly obey because they've seen what life in a different vineyard is like, and they don't want any part of that. You have your Bibles. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark. One one book over to the right. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And see the tendency that is inside of all of us, the temptation that we all have when it comes to this issue of repentance. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Do you see the temptation we all have? We all want people to like us. We all want to be in church. We all want that. We will honor the Lord with our mouth, but that does not mean our hearts will repent. It does not mean that we trust our Father to take us places that we don't want to go. Beware, it is so much easier to be religious than it is to be repentant. Truly, anyone can go to church and show up and go through the motions. Let me tell you this. It's way easier to write a sermon on repentance than to actually admit I'm wrong about something and change. Notice where the pride of these non-repentant people leads. You see, the thieves and the prostitutes, they're now enjoying life inside the Father's kingdom. They are at the feasting table. They are the ones celebrating the grace that is theirs. They're enjoying all that the Father has for them. But where is this fine, young, upstanding man and his friends? They're now with the religious people. And they live in this ongoing comparison trap. And please notice, they are miserable. Prideful, non-repentant, religious people are indignant when anyone messes with them. They're mean because they have no real life because they have never been honest about what's true inside of them, about their sin. Let me repeat, embracing a life of repentance aligns you with Jesus' good plan for your life. Church, may we love to repent, because when we recognize our sin, when we receive his grace, it positions us to enjoy the Father and all he has. All right, we've seen... Repentance produces life with the Father. We've seen failure to repent produces life away from the Father. But then lastly, remember our motivation. We've seen the first son. We've seen the second son. Consider the Father. I said the proposition this morning to the sermon is to embrace this life of repentance. That's to accept that repentance is a good thing because we're being honest. But consider the motivation of the Father. Why would he want us to obey Why would he want us to trust? Why would he want us to follow him? Is it not because of his great love for us that he knows where he's taking us? But understand this morning, to trust him and to repent, it's not easy. No one said it was. You can do it because of the power inside of you of Christ, but it's not easy. As you consider these two brothers this morning, let me ask you this. 
Which of these two, which of these two are you? Do you want a life built upon your own creativity and your own blessing? Or do you want the riches of the kingdom of Jesus where we rest completely upon him for everything? If that is what you want, you must believe the work of the Father. And he says repentance is good for you. A life of seeing Jesus in all of his ways, of conforming you over and over and over to his will. Repentance is your path. So be encouraged during this season of Lent. As you consider the work of your father, let me remind you, you actually have power to do this. And you know how I know that? It's because there was a time when a father also asked a son to go and do some work. And that son said, I will go. And he went. Our heavenly father told his son to come to this earth and to fulfill his task. And guess what? Jesus never repented. He considered the task in front of him. He did not change his mind. Consider all that Jesus knew about you and me. All of our sin, all of our ridiculous behavior. He knew what it would cost him. He knew what he was facing. He knew what was required of him. He knew unimaginable wrath would fall upon him. And he did not say, oh, Father, I'll do it. And then he changed his mind and not do it. But rather, he said, I'll do it. And he never regretted it. When Jesus thought of you, when Jesus thought of me, and all that we would do against him, he did not change his mind. You see, we can repent this morning because Jesus never did. Our hope is in the one who is with us. Jesus' work was finished when he went to the cross. He died so that in him we now have life with his Father. The kingdom in which we live, we can be honest about, we can celebrate. We can repent today because Jesus didn't. He finished his work. He was told to go and do his task, and Jesus did it. So church, I ask us all, May we embrace a life of repentance. This is our story. This is our hope that we will trust him to do what only he can do. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to prepare us to come to his table. And we will transition to the Lord's prayer in just a moment. Father, as we think of these things and we think of these two brothers and the reality that apart from you, we would be self-righteous and we would be sinful. But God, that is not how you see us. When you look upon us, you see the reality of Jesus and his finished work. So we thank you for this. We pray, oh God, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would love all that you have for us. So now, oh God, we pray as we've been taught to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
power, and glory forever.